Hello, this is Jack Skelly with Form Pioneering Design, and thank you for joining The Arch, connecting and supporting the arts and design community. We are brought to you by David Courtney Associates, manufacturing representative for Cristalia and MD House, world-class contemporary furniture. Able to ship in five to six weeks, allow David Courtney to introduce you to excellence in design. So it's awesome we have this sponsor, and today it's also awesome that we are fortunate to have David Senden, principal of KTGY Architecture and Planning. Did I get that right, David? You, get, you got it right, Jack. What's up? Anything else you want to add to your title there? No, that's enough. Nobody cares about titles. <laughs> <laughs> Any, yeah. So we, we have a lot of, you know, kind of interesting things to cover today, um, including some very interesting sort of approaches, solutions, ideas that KTGY has been working on. But let's get us in the mood about who you are as a person, you know, as a designer, as an architect, as a thinking person. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what inspires you to do what you do. Yeah, well, first, I just want to say thanks for having me here. Um, I've been listening to the the past episodes of the podcast, and I think they're fantastic and fascinating. And anybody that's listening now should go back and listen to those because there's some great people that have been on it. And I'm I'm uh, happy to be here. So, um, and then it's just what the world needs is another couple of middle-aged white guys having a podcast. So <laughs> Thank you for categorizing me as middle-aged, by the way. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, got, I grew up in a little tiny town in Nebraska, and I think I got into architecture just because it was very exotic. I never, I never knew any architects, never knew anything about architecture. It's just I knew I couldn't be in Nebraska forever, and architecture seemed like a thing that was far away, and so let me go do that. Um, and so, so I did, and I've been feeling like for um, the last 30-some-odd years, I've been playing kind of cultural catch-up. And so I'm fascinated by kind of everything, um, everything that's different than me. Um, and so, um, and, and I think architecture gives you just a great um, understanding of culture, of people, um, and of kind of the world around us. And so that's um, fascinating to me. Um, when did you relocate to Los Angeles then? So I've been in L.A. about a little over 20 years. So um, um, just about as long as most people, I guess, um, being in L.A. But, uh, you know, I grew up in Nebraska. I lived in New Orleans for a while, um, went to Tulane to graduate school, lived in Phoenix for a little bit, um, and then came here. Just sort of happenstance, my wife um, was working in in New Orleans at the time, and she came home from work and said, what do you think about L.A.? And I said, the abbreviation for Louisiana? I don't think they're changing it. Um, uh, I, I think it's fine. And she said, no, dummy, we're, you know, would you like to move to Los Angeles? And I said, oh, I don't know anything about it, but why not? Sent out a bunch of resumes, got a bunch of responses, came out here, and then like a month later I was... Uh, I was living in living in in Long Beach actually, mm -hmm. um, and she had a job in Torrance. I got my first job in Orange County. We sort of stuck our finger on the map, and uh, that was Seal Beach because she thought it looked saw it, thought it sounded cute, and right. uh, um, ended up Long Beach and have been there, living there ever since. And so that led me then to KTGY, and um, and then it's a, sort of a perfect location living in Long Beach. I I'm the managing principal of both our our high density and mixed use group in in Orange County, but also the managing principal of our LA office. And so um, it's kind of split my time going back and forth between the two. And, and I think we do want to talk about the scope of work for KTGY, both in Los Angeles and nationwide, really. Mm -hmm. But what do you think of Los Angeles? You know, 
over the past 20 years as a designer and a planner. What is your sense of what makes the city great and where it needs to improve? Oh, well, what makes the city great, I think, is those things that I was talking about earlier. There's so many things that are different than me. Um, and you can find differences all over. And the diversity of the city is something that's um, um, kind of unheard of anywhere. Um, and so, so I love that part of it. All the best of everything can be found in Los Angeles. And so whether that's, whether that's architecture, which we're going to talk about, or it's music, or it's dance, or it's any kind of the arts, um, the best of that can be found here. And so that's amazing. And I think, you know, there's also uh, having been here as long as I have now, I feel like it's my home. And so I feel confident critiquing it also, which is there's there's myriad problems. Um, and so not least of which is kind of the the homeless and the housing crisis um, and something that we're sort of on the front lines of every day. Um, and so those that's the thing that probably concerns me the most. And so all of and a lot of that stems straight from um, the origins of the city and how it evolved um, being so auto dependent um, and from an urban design standpoint um, leads to these long commutes um, and and just generates a lot of other problems. And so trying to fix that is a colossal task. And I don't know, maybe an insurmountable task, mm -hmm. but um, um, but an interesting challenge. And we'll talk about some potential solutions that you and your team are working on. Um, but let's stay with you for a minute more to, as a designer, as an architect, really as a, on a personal level, mm -hmm. what is your inspiration? What, what do you, who are your, your role models? Anything like that you want to talk about? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I ha obviously have the same sort of California architecture role models as everyone else, you know, so we, we, everybody always immediately sort of goes to those mid-century modern guys, the, the Schindlers and the Neutras and the Elwoods and those, those folks that um, really set the pace and I think still um, inspire, uh, gosh, we're going back, mm -hmm. we're going to have 50, 60 uh, years or more um, and they're still the inspiration for the architecture that we're doing today at kind of every scale. So I, I know you all have had some um, single family residential designers in here um, over the past few podcasts talking about their inspirations and they're doing things that are directly related to um, what those guys did. Um, for me, the kind of work that we do, um, it's large scale projects, it's big stuff, but we still draw inspiration from those um, guys, the way they treated the environment, the way um, the way they used California as an inspiration, and so um, it's interesting for me um, to try to translate those ideas into a bigger scale. And so, going from um, a small uh, little custom house um, or small apartment building to 500, 600, 700 units of 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 housing over the top of 100,000 square feet of commercial, and trying to preserve um, some of that inspiration that that uh, that kept those guys going um, is very interesting to me, and that that is very interesting. So, how would some of the concepts of say the Neutras and Schindlers translate to a multifamily development? You know, I mean, I know that they were very focused on indoor outdoor space. You know, the use of the climate, not as something to wall a home yeah. against, but actually to invite into a residence how might yeah and i think like that, that is that is absolutely part of it that just the 
the the planning of it and how those spaces flow together. And I think they, you know, just architecturally, aesthetically, and looking at those buildings and just the simplicity and kind of the honesty of the design without a lot of um, um, embellishment or or additive pieces. Um, and it sort of defined all of modernism. So I think, um, you know, that sort of drives our work. And so um, when you ask you know, we sometimes get a client or or somebody from the press that will say, um, well, what style is it? Um, and I I really like to say it's just good style. Um, you know, it's, it's we don't, don't, we're not getting into the, is it Tudor or is it Spanish revival or some of that? It's just good. And you hope that all of the pieces are there um, and they're in the right places. And it's uh, uh, a little, I think design is a little like... Um, you know, the old adage when you dress, um, you put everything on and you turn around and look in the mirror and the first thing you see that catches your eye, you should get rid of it because it's probably not necessary. Um, and so I sort of feel the same way about design. Um, you, you want to boil it down so all of the pieces are um, absolutely important. Um, and if you pulled one last piece away, the whole design sort of starts to fall apart. And so that's really what, I don't know that we, we hit the nail on the head every time, but that's sort of what we're looking for. Um, right. You know, I noticed that one of the high-rise projects that KTGY is working on now is in down, or just west of downtown L.A., mm -hmm. and it has these, you know, pretty roomy balconies, mm -hmm. plus a very large rooftop, maybe one or two rooftop areas. That's right, yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts? Can some of those designs be attributable to, you know, the mid-century modern, or is that just, you know, good design? Well, I think I, I think it's all of that. I think those mid-century modern designers were were fantastic at at being able to um, let space flow in and out. But truthfully, it's just our climate. Who wouldn't want to be outside? I think, you know, when we start designing downtown, though, there's a whole bunch of other problems that start to make you question whether having balconies outside is the best thing to do. And so in this particular location, it makes some sense. We've got some, we've got some good views and we're um, facing the biggest of those balconies kind of away from the busy streets. And so when you start designing downtown and you start getting in places where um, there's things like noise and freeway pollution and some other things like that, sometimes the thought about, oh, let's make this indoor outdoor space, um, you start to rethink some of those things and they become not as, um, as big a drivers of design, maybe. Got it. And and still sticking on the subject of cities in LA, and as an architect again and a planner, what's your comparison of LA to other great world cities? Well, you know, you talked about the diversity. You can kind of get anything in the world yep. here. But as a kind of planning level, where do you see? Well, the problem is you can get everything in the world, but you have to sit in your car for at least an hour to do it. That's, I think, right. the the biggest problem. Um, and so, you know, I I sort of came of age in New Orleans, um, and that's a city. I grew up in Nebraska. I live in L.A. Um, but if I get homesick, I kind of get homesick for New Orleans. And it's some of that is the scale of the city that you can get anywhere pretty quickly. There's a streetcar that runs right down the middle. And when I went to work in New Orleans, I got on the streetcar and I rode it a half an hour and I was I read the newspaper on the way and I was at my and it, there's something about the quality of life to that that's um, kind of amazing. Um, I think um, and we, we could talk later about uh, we're moving our office. And I think that part of the reason why we're thinking about doing that is to give our employees that kind of quality of life where they can live close to where they work and be able to um, 
you know, free up a couple hours of their day. So that's probably, I mean, and that's, that's not a unique viewpoint. That's probably everybody's criticism of Los Angeles is just that all of the things that you want to do are not next to each other. And so, um, including living. Um, so, um, and so that's probably, yeah. that's probably a thing. That no, I love that beautiful little streetcar in New Orleans that goes down that grass-lined parkway right through the city. Mm-hmm. It's like amazingly beautiful. Yep, right down St. Charles Avenue. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the other thing about New Orleans is fantastic is because it's got that diversity also. So pe- a lot of people that are different than me, and that's what, that's what I consider diversity. But, um, but uh, you know, there's this rich, rich sense of history and, um, and culture and sort of this thing that you can just feel when you're in the city. And I think that's the thing that's um, sometimes hard to come by in L.A., um, where it's pockets of that that are then sort of connected by these um, these wide areas of kind of um, anonymous uh, sprawl. And so um, I think I mean, I think there's a lot going on now, especially with sort of the uh, transit oriented communities and plans around transit stops to try to densify that. But um, there's um, a lot of work still to do. For sure. All right. So you mentioned um, downtown L.A. and a move to downtown L.A. So basically, uh, a, a significant office of KTGY architecture and planning is now going to be moved to downtown LA. You want to talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, no, we're uh, we're excited about it. We're we've had an office on the west side of LA in Santa Monica and now in Playa Vista for a number of years, and um, and it's grown and it's great. And but it was it's just really hard for our employees to um, to afford housing anywhere near the office is difficult. Um, it's. It's hard for our clients to get to. Um, the West Side is notoriously bad trying to navigate um, down there. So um, we just made the decision about a year ago that really it makes sense for us to, to sort of pick up and move downtown. And so we're going to be on Spring Street in the old um, Trust Bank building. Um, and we're ho- we'll have an office. It's about uh, enough space for about 70 people or so. And so it's a significant office. Um, but we think, you know, it helps the helps the employees with their commute times and being able to live kind of anywhere kind of in the L.A. basin and be able to get into downtown. It also helps with um, recruiting talent. We've had trouble recruiting talent sometimes on the west side because there, um, there's a lot of firms um, downtown, and so them maybe moving j- jobs or something is easy, but to tell people that you got to go to Playa Vista um, – sometimes gets uh, an eye roll and uh, well, maybe there's something else for me. So we hope that that'll help us even grow even more. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just I think the, the new energy of being downtown and all that's going on down there. And um, before we went on the air, we talked a, a little bit about what Spring Street used to be. Mm-hmm. We're excited to be kind of the next generation of what happens there. And um, as kind of the the nice part of downtown continues to spread east, mm-hmm. I think. Um, we're excited to be part of that. Um, and that's a beautiful old deco zigzag modern building designed by the Parkinson's. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, and I think, you know, um, Ry- uh, Chris Rising and Nelson Rising bought the building a while ago, and they've spent a lot of time kind of gutting it and remodeling, and I think we'll be the first tenant in there. And so um, it's, it's really exciting for us, yeah. So, in the meantime, your firm is doing some actual projects in downtown, or has done. One of them is very, very inventive. It's gotten a lot of attention. The Hope on Alvarado project, which is actually 
the first, I believe, of a series of Hope On developments that exploring very innovative technology in modular housing. You know, there's been a lot of talk about shipping container developments. This one is a little bit different from that, but definitely kind of employs the idea of, you know, pre-made containers that can be used at very low cost. And this one's actually emerging at Alvarado Street mm-hmm. in you know the Westlake area. You want to talk about what's different about that and what, how that's emerging? Well, I think that there's two things that are, well, there may be more than two, but two things that are very cool about it. One is just the population that it's serving. So it's uh, permanent supportive housing for the homeless. And so um, that's... Um, you know, we are kind of being being um, an architecture firm that's sort of on the front lines of of the housing um, the housing crisis. Um, we think it's um, just good work to be doing, and so that's that's number one. And the second one is kind of trying to find these new construction types that um, because um, because construction costs are so high and in some ways um, prohibitive sometimes. We're looking at a lot of different ways to to increase speed to um, to 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 get people into their to their um, dwellings, but also um, you know in, decrease the cost of the construction. And so this is modular construction, and it is shipping containers, but they're shipping containers that are. Um, that are made specifically for this purpose. So they didn't they didn't just happen to the port of LA and they're repurposed. We we started down that road um, and then found that trying to repurpose c- shipping containers for housing, who knows what the paint on those containers is? Lead paint painted in China or Korea or somewhere. And so um, what we found is much easier to contract directly with the shipping container manufacturer and just build housing units. Um, so we're working with several manufacturers, but we're, the, the HOPE projects are working with a manufacturer out of China. Um, we're working on some other stuff with manufacturer out of Korea um, and have some other uh, plans for um, factories in Mexico. And, um, and so we'll see where all of that goes. And we're a little bit at the, at the VHS Betamax standpoint, if mm-hmm. I'm going to um, date myself even a little bit more. But it's trying to figure out which of these technologies is going to kind of win out um, and where and where the best place to do this work from. So, you know, we, we keep wanting to develop these containers in the U.S., but there's no factories large enough to do it at scale. Um, right. And just you know that it, it's a little bit of a vicious cycle it seems because it's we're we're looking to lower construction costs so we're to do that we have to build overseas which then moves construction jobs which are the perfect jobs for those people who you're trying to help so um, there's a lot of intertwined issues in this and um, but for now, what we're trying to do is figure out how it works best. And, you know, getting things from China is also a little precarious. Right. We're one tariff away from maybe seeing that go right. go down in flames also. If we're, if we're trying to reduce the construction cost by 20 percent and we get a 20 percent tariff on it, all of a sudden um, – um, that that doesn't work anymore. So you better and so, hurry up and order those containers yeah, before so, Trump so there, makes another move. Yeah, def- <laughs> definitely. So there is there is some of that uh, fingers crossing yeah. going on, and and then 
you know, the first of these that people are doing are, it's a little bit pioneering. Now, containers are, I mean, containers and that sort of thing has been around for a long time. It's just, I think, the point of getting it to the kind of scale that we're talking about. It's not a one, two, three unit, even 20 unit kind of thing. We're talking about hundreds of people and trying to do this multiple times across the city. So that's the challenge of all of this. And, um, and so... Um, it, it isn't even, while I think these projects are going to look beautiful, um, it's not really about that. It's about, um, it's about solving this puzzle of, of construction costs and people that need homes and, um, and then the overarching kind of nimbyism and, um, and entitlement um, challenges that happen in LA too. Right. Um, and so all of that kind of wrapped together makes this, this hard because we're, we're doing um, permanent supportive housing for the homeless, um, which is a great mission, but ev- and everybody wants it, but nobody wants it right next to them. Yeah. And so we run into those challenges as well. Right. Um, and the whole concept of the modular housing is, like you say, it's a kind of a brave new world for the industry right now. There are lots of, com- you know, competing or alternative ways of approaching it, you know, s- different kinds of wood construction that mm-hmm. are maybe artificial or something yep. like that and other kinds of shipping container approaches but yep. you're it, f- it seems like you and your designers are kind of figuring out your own way of doing it or seeing what other best practices are too but it looks like you're kind of customizing a particular approach to a container that then could be used as a model for other developments is that fair Yeah to it's say? true it's true I think what's what's really fun about this whole process is it takes a team and so you know, we as designers are kind of nothing without the contractors and the factories that are building this. So it really takes a, it really, it, it takes a, it takes a team effort to put all this together. And we're working with multiple teams as kind of the design piece of. It. So that's what I'm saying. We're sort of trying to figure out where this is going because, um, you know, there are different, even on the kind of the container world, mm. there's a lot of different avenues and there's people that are doing it differently. Eventually, one of those is going to become kind of the standard thing. But we've got kind of lots of irons in the fire trying yeah. to um, trying to at least give value where we can to each of those. Yeah. Um, and then in addition to that, we're talking about um, heavy timber construction as n- maybe another solution or other... Um, steel frame construction technologies that um, could help to, to peel some of the construction costs back. So, um, so we're, we're trying not to go all in necessarily on anything, but be um, kind of in the know uh, on the front lines of all of it. So. And these are real projects with a real developer attached. Yeah. Aegis uh, development, is that correct? Aegis, yeah. Aegis, excuse me. Mm-hmm. So this is not just hypothetical now. This is like a real... Oh, no. Yeah. There's uh, the, the Hope on Alvarado project right. that you mentioned is under construction. Right. The containers are here. It's being assembled. It's, um, that's, um, and that then is the first... And we won't call it a prototype because it's a real building. Um, but that's the, that's the first one kind of out of the blocks. And then there's... Uh, um, four, five, six of those following on the heels that we're working on now with that particular developer. And then we've got another, we've got another uh, developer integrity that's uh, working on their own thing and they're going, we've working on a, another a hotel and other things with another developer. And so um, the, the modular thing definitely is um, catching some traction and, and moving forward. And so yeah. we're excited about that. 
So let's transition now into a little bit more in the hypothetical area, although no less urgent and kind of related to the same issue. We've got the project that your company worked on, Rehabit, which is basically a proposal or, you know... It's an idea. An idea, right. A scenario for you. You know, there's one type of... of real estate asset, which is the big box stores, which are rapidly going defunct. You know, the retail crash is hurting yeah. all the big malls. So your company, well, I'll let you describe it. What It's like an alternative use for a big box. Well, yeah, we've, um, so we are uh, primarily a housing firm, um, but we do a lot of retail too. So, you know, we're, we're 400 people in seven offices. And so we, we definitely get into um, a lot of retail work and we have a pretty robust retail studio. Um, and so that studio has been very involved in um, repurposing malls, renovating malls. And then on the housing side, we've been brought in a lot with um, Sears and Macy's and some of these stores that are um, uh, trying to reinvent themselves, maybe, um, sit on a lot of land. Um, and so, you know, in those cases, it just started us thinking we, we have a, a research and development studio at KTGY at in addition to the other things I, I head up. And so we, were, we just started thinking about what are the other potential uses for these big box stores. And so sort of combining our experience with trying to work on homeless housing and then thinking about these big boxes, we thought about, well, could you, could you repurpose the big boxes as sort of a self-sustaining um, rehabilitation Um, homeless housing model. And so it's more probably about the programming of it than it is about the actual design of it. Um, And some of that gets generated from our time spent with the Long Beach Rescue Mission. We're doing a we're doing a pro bono project with them right now. And so in in kind of, you know, we started with the um, with the R&D idea of about how could we how could we do a homeless um, housing solution? And if you Google homeless housing solution, there's an infinite list of things that comes up. So there's no shortage of designers and architects thinking about um, solutions for housing the homeless. And so we were trying to figure out what kind of spin could we put on it. And so as part of the research, we went to to meet with the Long Beach Rescue Mission. And um, um, Robert Probst there, the the director, was very excited about um, about the idea um, and gave us some insights into how they program and and kind of how the how the process works as somebody comes in the door and 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 then eventually hopefully leaves to to housing um, and that sort of led us to this and it also led us to him and his pro, in the pro bono project that we were doing for them so he we walked in and he said uh, you know it's amazing that you're here and you know divine intervention must have done this because we're looking at this project mm-hmm. and could you help us with it so we said yeah, sure. And he said, well, what would you charge us? And we said, well, we're not going to charge. I mean, this is mm-hmm. uh, this is an awesome mission. So we said, uh, absolutely, we'll do it. And so that'll be a 44-bed women and children's shelter at some time. So that's great. Yeah, you definitely, a project like that definitely requires an institution like the Long Beach Rescue Mission to provide the services. But on a design level, how would you change a big box store to become a service agency? And well, the great the great thing about a big box store is it's just an empty shell, so you can put into it where whatever you want. And the other thing that's that's kind of cool about a big box is there's no immediate neighbors that are right next. So you've got a big parking lots mm-hmm. out in front, and so I think some of it is about proximity and transportation of getting people there, and how does all of that work? And so you know the the hope is though that you could. Um, 
that you could have um, a program that was several steps. So you come in, you're sort of dorm style living, you could graduate into a place of your own, you maybe then could work at a store that's run by, um, that's run by the, the, the Rehabit project itself um, to give you um, sort of social skills. Because I think, you know, um, the, the homeless problem that we have right now is not um, purely about a lack of housing. There's, there's a lot of other issues. And so um, be, whether it's mental health issues or substance abuse issues or and sometimes if you didn't have these issues before you became homeless, after you become homeless, there's a, it's, a very, it's a very quick slide into either of those things. And so um, that support system, it's not just about um, constructing some plywood box that people can have a shelter over their head, which might be important for a minute. Um, but eventually, um, there's a life skills um, component to this, and, a, and there might be a, a medicine component to this and a public health component that um, really – and so trying to bring all of that stuff together um, and looking for a place that's big enough to do it at kind of at scale. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's the other thing that's troubled me about the, the effort that we have going on in this city right now is it's so piecemeal. There's all these people with all the best of intentions – doing very little. Um, and I, I think if we could marshal all of that and do things at scale, we could solve this problem um, or make a dent in it quickly. But at, at doing 10, unit, 10 units here and 20 units there, people are becoming homeless a lot faster than we're solving the problem. And so... Um, and the money is there. There's actually city funds available for some of these programs. Well, in, in some of them, they've put so many restrictions on the ability to get those funds um, that make it nearly impossible. So if you, if you put the restriction that you can't build housing using this money closer than 500 feet from a freeway, that's the land that's available. Right. And so, and there are cities, there are cities and, and pretty decent sized cities that have no land that's less than 500 right. feet from a free. So, yeah. so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a challenge. I think um, we have to decide what our priorities are. Um, so we need to solve the problem. Um, and at the same time, we need to be environmentally sensitive. And at the same time, we can't uh, um, offend anybody that lives there currently. And so all of these things get wrapped together. It just makes it a very difficult problem. Now, before we leave the world of retail then, or, you know, we talked about the big box, you know, as being sort of a declining type because of the rise of, you know, online, basically online retail, mm-hmm. Amazon, et cetera. But, like you said, KTGY still does a lot of retail work. Given the situation with the retail design type these days, what's the future of retail design? Well, I, you know, there is a decline in for some retailers, but the ones that are good are still doing fine. So I think it's it's not so much that there's a there's too much retail space. That's there's not enough good retail space and. Uh, I think the the I, I I'm not one that says that um, online is killing all retail. I think if you look at um, destination retail places, it's about experience now, um, and so people don't want to stay home. Even if you could get everything that you needed all day long by staying at home and sitting on your couch, which you can, 
people don't want to do that. And so the people that are being successful are the ones that are creating experiences that you can go, you go, you want to go out and be in that place. And, um, and maybe it's, um, that because you've gone out and been in that place, then you'll buy something. Um, and maybe that's a little different than before. So maybe you're, before you were going out to buy things and maybe you would buy some food at the food court. Well, now it's maybe you're going out to eat at the food hall that's being, it's basically a re-envisioned food court, right? And so you're going out there it's a, a, and you're, you're getting a bite to eat. And since I'm here, let me go see what those guys have because they have really cool stuff. Um, I think that's more um, the mindset to be in in the retail world these days than um, thinking that the retail is necessarily going to drive it. Um, I think there's, a, there's that experience trying to be kind of the, the living room to the community um, where if I want to go out and I want to take my laptop and I want to work there, there's a place for me. While I'm there, I'm going to get a cup of coffee. And then while I have a cup of coffee, I might um, go to that boutique that's over there. I think there's that synergy that needs to happen um, more than um, trying to say, well, everybody needs stuff. And so we just need to provide a place for the stuff. And so I think long-term retail developers are having a having a little bit of a tough time coming to terms with their formulas don't work like they used to. And, um, and the retail world is definitely driven by these formulas of the stores have to be this big and this deep and they have to have loading at this place. And really the places that are being successful now are those authentic experience places that are different than every other place. I think people are tired of going. And this is why those, those big department stores at suburban malls are struggling uh, because people are tired of going to a mall that's just like the mall that's 20 miles away from here, that's just like the mall that's 40 miles away from here, that's just like the mall that's all the way across the country. Um, and so trying to find those places of authentic experience, of um, places that that you have something that you don't get everywhere else. Um, you mentioned, you know, people doing work at a potential development like that. You know, and I think to some degree that sort of the division of uses you know, just separation of retail from housing, from working, has been sort of this persistent problem. Um, how could a new design, and at the same time, you know, we work, a co-working space is now exploding everywhere yep. across the world. And you start to see co-working spaces now incorporated into residential developments quite a bit. Some very sort of interesting, like coffee house type, yep. you know, we uh, co-working spaces in a residential project. Yep. But you don't see it so much in retail, or do you? Do, do you think that's a viable Well, we're option? starting to see um, developers that are trying to mash all of that together. I think what, why it's slow, though, is because of the way that developers and uh, have been divided for so long. You were either a retail developer or you were a residential developer. And, and now there are mixed-use developers that kind of understand the trade-offs when you start to mush them together because you're not going to get um, – everything for everybody in those so there's compromises if you're if you've got retail on the ground floor um, and you're going to put residential above there's a whole bunch of things that need to come down from the residential that come through that retail space that those retailers don't like so you've got exit stairs and you've got elevators and you've got plumbing pipes dropping down and over the over the supermarket produce aisle and there's there's lots of things that are conflicts and so um we love it because we love solving puzzles and that's fun. But um, if you're talking to a very traditional retailer, um, 
they're going to start complaining about that. And then the residential guys got a smell of French fries coming up right. all day long that maybe is not, uh, or a nightclub on the ground floor that's creating noise or mm -hmm. any number of things that could be disruptive to the tenants above. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's trying to mitigate all of that stuff. Um, and then, you know, technology is awesome. And so that's why all of these co-working spaces are popping up in, in residential developments is, um, you know, we talked about the cost of housing and how um, you have a sort of finite amount that you can spend for rent. And so your, your unit is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, but your ability to work from anywhere or work from home is getting easier and easier and easier. Well, nobody, like I said, nobody wants to sit on their couch all day long. And so giving them a place that they can plug in. And I think there is a social aspect of sort of that water cooler talk and, um, and those Sort, that sort of camaraderie that you get in a workplace that um, is missing as soon as you become a telecommuter of some kind. So, Now, in addition to co-working, another new emerging sort of uh, typology that we're hearing a lot about these days is shared living. Um, because also as an alternative to the high cost of housing again. And KTGY has been working on another sort of R&D concept called Co-Dwell, which kind of takes the shared living concept in a different direction than I've been hearing lately. You want to talk about how it's not so much about um, smaller units for individual, you know, people, but more shared living for on a family type level. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, we've got we've got any number of um, R and D projects focused on different kinds of co living, um, and so the the easiest one is kind of. Um, a great big unit with a lot of bedrooms. Um, and so it could be uh, 50 bedrooms centered around one um, one big living space. Um, and so, I don't know, back in, everything old is new again, right? The tiny house used to be a trailer park and the um, co-living used to be an SRO. Um, these things are all just uh, um, some recycled ideas with a, with a bit of a uh, hipster spin to them. But, uh, and I think the one you're talking about, CodeWell, um, really it's just thinking about how can you re reconceptualize um, the the unit so that more people can live in it comfortably, um, and and it's just trying to trying to bridge that economic um, that economic chasm and trying to trying to make things affordable. And so people are already living in strange. Um, uh, in strange conditions with unusual family circumstances. And I don't even know what a usual family circumstance is anymore, but you have, um, you have multi-generational families, you have, um, you know, single parent families that have come together as two single parents and they want to live together. And it's the way we've traditionally designed units just isn't conducive for that. And so thinking about, could you design a four bedroom unit that is has some separation between the two wings of bedrooms so that you sort of get two two bedroom um, wings that are sharing a common living living space where you might get together for communal meals but you could go back to your wing and close the doors and get some privacy also um, and so we we can see that working in a lot of different ways probably and that's really the idea is that you give it as much flexibility as you possibly can because um, 
who am I to say how you want to live as a family? Um, and so whether it's four unrelated people that want to get together to share it, uh, a mother and a child sharing it with, uh, with some grandparents, um, two single parents sharing it with their kids, like I, 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 I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to make it as easy for people to live there and have a good quality of life as I can. And that would include in some of these proposals also sort of communal uh, kitchen areas or recreation areas, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think as and it and it depends where it is and what the population you're serving is interested in. But being able to get out of your unit and um, establish a sense of community, I think, is um, it's just a human instinct that you you want to associate with other people. And so um, designing those places so that people can come out and interact together and whether it's uh, for art classes or cooking classes or just to hang out, um, I think is um, really important. So that's very interesting and it kind of suggests to me a different model for an architect. And many of us are used to you know, hearing about the Frank Gehrys of this world who are kind of revered as an auteur in the same way that, uh, you know, Fellini is, you know, the one sort of single person that, you know, changes the industry. But you're talking about sort of a collaborative approach, and I wonder if there's a dynamic that appeals to you on a personal level, but is not about the personal person, you know, the identity of the designer. Yeah, it's it's very true. We spend... Uh, we do spend a lot of time talking about um, teamwork, um, and I think uh, this whole um, Howard Rourke fountainhead sort of um, attitude toward architects that um, that they're um, these creators, um, I think, is a little bit of a fallacy in today's world. It takes giant teams to do these projects, and even if you're doing um, single-family detached housing where um, it's it's a guy drawn a lot of it. Um, there's still a whole host of people that come together to make that happen. And that is really from the time I got into And I did single-family housing um, in a very small office when I started. But what really appealed to me was working collaboratively with a team. And that's why it's very strange sitting here um, talking um, as one person about all of this work that we do um, because there's um, so many people involved in it. And I think... Um, that's what's sort of interesting to me. Um, I've always been, I've always liked solving puzzles and things, and I think we do a lot of that. And so um, for the space that our firm occupies, um, it's not it's not so much about aesthetics. While that is definitely part of it, and we think we make beautiful buildings, and I, I, I love beautiful buildings, um, they're, they're so complex. There's so many pieces. There's so many moving parts. There's so many um, disparate viewpoints that have to be addressed from um, that. Um, that's really what excites me and drives me is when you can get all of that stuff kind of aligned perfectly. Um, there's something that's kind of magical about it. And then thinking that we're working in in housing um, and you spend the better part of your life in the place that you live um, and to be able to try to elevate that living situation, it's a big responsibility um, and probably a responsibility that the, that the architectural community does not give enough, um, uh, enough credence to. We spend a lot of time worshiping um, architects that um, design museums and airports and libraries. And, um, and then maybe we spend some time talking a lot about architects that do um, – 
sort of single family housing for rich people up in the hills or by the beach. Um, and we spend some time um, because I think it makes us feel good to talk about housing for the poor. But there's a big swath of people in the middle um, that it lands kind of as a, as a place for developers to make money. Um, and I think maybe we don't spend enough time talking about the about design for those folks because it's hard to quantify the value of design. So it's hard for my developer clients to put it in the spreadsheet. And so we spend our time working, working with how do we meet all of the goals for our clients and our developers and still make something beautiful? Because um, those two things, it's not always that you get clients that I mean, is sort of uh, the, the dream when your, your client and the architect sort of um, align on that thinking. But we spend a lot of time sort of thinking in-house kind of about all of those, um, all of those architectural ideas, the beauty and stuff. And some of that never gets revealed to the client. It's inspiration to us and it drives us forward. But really what we got to tell them about is our floor area ratio and our building efficiency and how many bedrooms does it have and how big are the bathrooms and does this meet the, the fair housing code? Does it meet the building codes? Can we exit people? All of that stuff, those puzzle pieces kind of get shoved around and that's important. Um, and then we spend sort of the time for ourselves and for our soul talking about the other stuff. Um, so as a designer, you know, the, 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 the personalities of the designer of you and your team are subsumed under the needs of a particular project like the ones you just mentioned. So how do you get personal satisfaction out of your work? Where does that come from? <laughs> well, well um, you, you say that like I have personal satisfaction. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I get great satisfaction from working with our teams um, and the people at our firm. I think that is in the mentoring part of that and the developing the relationships. Um, um, no doubt we get personal satisfaction from the projects that we do and the buildings that we design. And I think um, I put our design work against anybody out there. But there are days when it's a grind and um, and it's all about the people that you work with. And um, and so um, especially on big projects, because if you're if you're designing a project that's it's a high rise project, it's got, uh, you know, it's it's 40, 50 stories tall. Um, the amount of time that gets spent on sort of that big aesthetic idea is very minimal compared to the amount of time that gets spent on making that building stand up, making it meet building code, making it uh, keep water out, all of that sort of. So you have to find some um, some personal satisfaction in those details and then in the coming together of the team um, and the camaraderie that it takes to build mm -hmm. something that enormous, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I think, you know, the 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 magic of what it looks like is um, is fun and interesting, but it's a very small portion of what we what we do every day um, as a team. Mm -hmm. so. so all right. So maybe one last question about this kind of relates back to the personal satisfaction question, but do you have a personal mission statement? Or it could be professional, you know, relating to your company as well. But I think yeah. it's get better every day. Um, I really think that's all, all that. And that's, that's professionally, but also in life. Um, trying to be better than I was yesterday, trying to make our team better than it was yesterday, trying to make uh, the firm better than it was yesterday. Um, I don't have a, 
uh, some sort of a manifesto, some sort of a thing that I think um, um, all of our work needs to be driven by because we have such variety in the work that we do um, and everything we do is very contextual. And so um, what we do needs to relate to the time that it, the time that we're in, the place that we're in, um, and all of the all of the various um, uh, components that need to go together. But each one of our projects can get better, um, and so we can get better at design. We can get better at um, understanding the building code. We can get better with technology. Heck, we can get better writing a contract. And so that's something that we preach to everybody every day is um, to be better today than you were yesterday. And it's part of our, our firm vision statement. And it's, it's just um, something that we think about all the time. And for me personally, at home too. Well, thank you very much, David Sendin from KTGY Architecture and Planning. And once again, today's podcast was brought to you by David Courtney Associates. And thank you all for listening and join us again next time on The Arch. This is Jack Skelly for Form Pioneering Design. We'd also like to thank our sound producer, Bruce Barker, and producer Jerry Levy from Form Magazine for making this happen. <laughs>